join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. The line has been crossed. It is a Canadian tradition that the leaders campaign, the demonstrators demonstrate, but everyone goes home safely at the end of the day. That appeared to be in jeopardy last week as a mob forced the cancellation of a Liberal Party event in Bolton, Ontario, in the riding of Dufferin Caledon, and it was reprised a couple of days later in Cambridge. That and the rest of the week's development straight ahead on this Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. So let's get to it. JMM, I'm sure most of our listeners have seen footage of the demonstration last week in Bolton, which got very ugly. But on the chance that some haven't, um, how about you just take a moment and describe some of what went down at the Justin Trudeau campaign event, both in Bolton and frankly, in Cambridge as well. So there have been uh, protesters at several of Justin Trudeau's events uh, so far in this campaign. Uh, this one, I think uh, a lot of people found very different uh, very early on. Uh, incredible uh, anger, fury in the faces of the protesters, uh, obscene gestures, obscene shouting, uh, screaming. Um, even, you know, reporters at the time, uh, you know, well before the decision was made to to scrub the event, uh, predicted that it would be canceled because uh, the of the, the location and because of the, the nature of the crowd. Uh, obviously, you know, videos have been going around on social media. Uh, I, I think one I found particularly upsetting was one of a, a, an anti-vax activist uh, just screaming at a child for wearing a mask. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's really unhinged out there right now, and uh, I think it's fair to say that it's uh, entirely offside from whatever reasonable people might think is a, a fair disagreement during an election campaign. Well, the reaction has been swift and, interestingly enough, quite nonpartisan. Uh, Mr. Trudeau actually tried to demonstrate some empathy for the demonstrators, saying he knew the past year and a half has been very difficult and he understands their anger. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, to his credit, said, quote, I expect professionalism. I expect respect. I respect my opponents. That in response to the revelation that some of the demonstrators were wearing T-shirts from the Dufferin-Caledon conservative candidate Kyle Seaback, uh, who also had this to say. He said, quote, my campaign has zero tolerance for obscenities or threatening behavior against any candidate. Accordingly, these individuals are no longer welcome on my campaign. Um, these are all the right things to say. Uh, however, it's also sad to say that this hasn't been the only example of bad behavior that crosses the line during this campaign. Also on Saturday, uh, Calgary Conservative candidate Michelle Rempel-Garner said she's been threatened and accosted. Uh, a video surfaced showing her being uh, approached by a man demanding she answer questions while she was seated in a restaurant uh, having dinner with her husband. Uh, Green Party leader Annamie Paul has also talked about the uh, really vicious online threats her campaign has received. Paul is, of course, uh, the first uh, female black and Jewish party leader. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, has uh, continually faced uh, racist abuse and threats uh, even before this campaign began. Um, and again, in Cambridge this weekend, uh, Justin Trudeau was met again by shouts of uh, lock him up and worse. There were uh, protest signs uh, involving uh, nooses, uh, just uh, really bad stuff. <laughs> I think we will remember also in 2019 when Jagmeet Singh was basically approached by a um somebody who wanted to participate in one of his campaign events, and he said, you know, you got to take that turban off. 
Uh, and I think <laughs> Mr. Singh, as I recall, had such an empathetic and positive response to the fella that he really caught him unawares. Anyway, this election campaign, unfortunately, is not the first time that we're seeing these kinds of things happen. Uh, Toronto Mayor John Tory and his wife were having dinner outdoors at a restaurant a few weeks ago when they were accosted by somebody with a smartphone literally screaming at the mayor and recording it all as he was doing it. For what purposes, I'm not sure. And let's also remember that demonstrators have gone to Ontario Premier Doug Ford's home and protested loudly in front of his home, disrupting the neighborhood. And, you know, personally, I just don't think there's any place for that in our politics either. Now, here's the thing, people. Everyone appreciates a vigorous, energetic debate on the issues, and protesters are surely part of every election campaign. But when it crosses the line... As I would suggest, all of these examples have, well, they're going to ruin it for everybody. Now, I, I, I remember the days when average citizens could approach the premier or the prime minister on the hustings in a spontaneous fashion. They could share a concern. They could have a conversation. The security was not oppressive. Those opportunities are disappearing because security, understandably, is becoming more oppressive. And again, not to sound like an old fogey here, JMM, but it wasn't that long ago you could just walk into the Ontario legislature, take a tour, watch question period. You didn't have to go through a metal detector. You could visit an MPP and you didn't need strip searching on the way in. I'm exaggerating, but only a bit. If we want a thriving democracy here, we need to learn how to disagree with basic civility. And if we don't, we're going to lose all access to the leaders on the campaign trail. And that that would be a terrible price to pay in a democracy. There's something beautiful about when these folks are in public and on the hustings, being able to have some access to them. And we're going to get less and less if this kind of stuff continues. Now, I'll get off my soapbox now and let my friend John Michael add whatever he wants to here. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking of um, the uh, UK Labour MP uh, who was killed uh, during the uh, tumult of the, the, the run-up to their Brexit referendum, right, where we saw all sorts of language about people being traitors and, uh, you know... <sighs> It's a, a, a cliche for writers, I suppose, but, you know, words matter and the words we choose to use matter and the language that we use to describe our opponents uh, who are not our enemies, but, you know, our, our fellow citizens, uh, that all matters. And, uh, you know, it's um, I started my reporting career at Toronto City Hall. And uh, when I started there in 2010, uh, you, you literally could still walk into City Council when it was uh, in session. And yeah, there was a security guard who wanted to like look at your bag and make sure that you weren't bringing in anything dangerous. But, uh, you know, it was very, a, a very low cost of entry. And you are separated from city councillors by nothing more than a velvet rope. And that stayed true uh, through all of the Rob Ford years, which included some pretty rambunctious council meetings, you might recall, uh, including a lot of heckling from uh, the audience. Um, and then, of course, we saw the uh, terrorist attacks on Parliament Hill in 2014, and those have uh, really reverberated across Canada and convinced a number of places, uh, including, unfortunately, Toronto City Council, uh, to increase the security measures there. And I mean, I say it's unfortunate, but I think it's also uh, a predictable, understandable outcome from these kinds of things. Uh, but like you, it's uh, we we really lose something when these people and these places are not uh, as freely accessible as they could be. Yeah, and again, I I don't want to overly dramatize what's been going on lately, but. 
But we always seem to be a few years behind the United States in terms of importing uh, some of the prevailing cultural winds from down there. And, you know, I just sure would never like to see events the likes of which they saw down in Washington, D.C. on the 6th of January earlier this year happen here. We just don't need that here. You know, we just don't need that. And, and you know, get out and protest, carry your signs, be vigorous, uh, you know, do whatever <laughs> is reasonable uh, in a democracy. But, but folks, like, no violence. No violence. Profanity in front of kids. Um, you know, it's enough. It's enough. We're going to lose something that we really cherish if we keep this up. So we just got to, it's enough. It's enough. The line has been crossed. Okay, uh, JMM, let's move on here. I want to take a look at some polling now. Uh, a look at the three major party leaders in Ontario who are in double digits in polling right now. And if you wonder why the NDP is doing better in this election compared to, let's say, in 2019, look no further than Jagmeet Singh, the leader. Abacus data was in the field a couple of weeks ago, and when you compare Mr. Singh's positives and negatives, he is at plus 18. He's the most popular leader. Justin Trudeau is at minus three, and Aaron O'Toole of the Conservatives is at minus 15. Now, let's put that into some perspective here. Uh, when Premier Doug Ford was experiencing the worst of his troubles during his first year in power, he was at minus 50. That's 5-0. <laughs> so the three leaders aren't fabulously popular or disastrously unpopular. And of course, there's still three weeks left for the leaders to change those numbers. We remind everybody, gosh, I say this all the time, but it's true. Polls tell you what people thought yesterday. They don't predict what people are going to think tomorrow. Abacus, incidentally, also had the party polling results in the province of Ontario as follows. Liberals 35, Conservatives 29, NDP 24, Greens 3. Now, admittedly, those numbers are not from yesterday. They're a little older than that, so things may have changed. Uh, but if the election were held tomorrow, JMM, give us some sense about what those kinds of numbers would translate to in the seat count in Ontario. It's a, a pretty far cry from what the Liberals had in Ontario in the last Parliament. Uh, in the 2019 election, the Liberals won 79 Ontario seats compared to 36 for the Conservatives and 6 for the NDP. Uh, but that was based on a, a much stronger showing that the Liberals had in this province uh, two years ago. Uh, there is not a chance that a six-point Liberal lead would produce the same 43-seat uh, lead uh, uh, on the Conservatives this time. Uh, it would be much closer. Uh, and of course, you know, without a massive lead in Ontario, the, the Liberals' chances of forming the next government, uh, certainly the, the, the chances of forming a majority government uh, seem to be um, hugely diminished, let's say. <laughs> uh, I should also note that on Monday, uh, we published a piece at TVO.org by David Mosscrop looking at how Ontario's votes uh, may or may not play out on Election Day. Uh, one point he makes is that uh, for, really for the Conservatives, uh, you know, Ontario is uh, the whole ball game for them. You know, uh, they, they do very well in the prairies, of course, but, you know, struggle in Quebec, struggle, struggle in the Atlantic provinces. Uh, so Ontario is really where they need to uh, uh, make up their margins, so to speak. I was just going to point out that uh, there are other polling agencies that have the Conservatives more competitive with the Liberals right now in the province of Ontario. And obviously, if you're a Tory supporter, that's all to the good because, uh, I mean, you and I have been saying this for a few weeks now. Uh, you, you can't win the election if you don't win Ontario. Uh, you win Ontario, you're well on the way there. So that that's not two guys who make their living in Ontario saying that. That's just what the numbers say. <laughs> it is. And I, I sometimes uh, irritate uh, people from the West and, you know, uh, 
the, the disappointing reality for Western conservatives who have a very um, uh, particular idea of what they want the Conservative Party to be is that because you can't win without winning Ontario, uh, any conservative majority government is always going to be putting a bit more water in its wine than <laughs> the Western conservatives would like. But that is a whole other uh, discussion for another time. <laughs> Well, while we're on it, one of the interesting developments in this campaign is the move by the Conservative Party uh, much more to the ideological center. Uh, under Stephen Harper, the party was definitely much more focused on looking, for example, tough on crime. And in this campaign, uh, the party leader Aaron O'Toole made an announcement in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago saying um, the accent on those addicted to drugs should be much more focused on health promotion and treatment rather than punishment. That's new. Uh, O'Toole has also talked about mental health as just health, trying to destigmatize mental illness and putting some big dollars behind a five-year program. Then this past week, the Conservatives announced that they would create a new stream of employment insurance sickness benefits for those going through serious illness. And then there was an announcement on Monday of this week about animal welfare. These are not typical ideologically right-wing positions. So what's going on here? One way to look at it is that um, you could say, for example, that the Liberals and other progressive parties have moved to the left and that it has uh, opened up more room in the middle uh, and that the Tories are just trying to occupy that space. Uh, and I think some of that is true, but uh, something else is happening here, or at least I think it is. Um, there's always been a conservative argument for, um, to take an example, uh, ensuring that big companies don't distort the free market. Uh, and, you know, a, a, a conservative position uh, for uh, policies to address monopolies or price fixing. Uh, there are even conservative arguments for things like uh, unions or uh, other labor policies that ensure workers aren't exploited by their employers. It's just that within the conservative movement, those voices didn't get a lot of attention over the last, let's say, 40 years or so. Uh, one of the things that we have started seeing in Canada, and I think in the U.S., uh, since the election of Donald Trump, is uh, a much wider debate within the conservative movement about, you know, what does it mean to be a conservative? And do you have to be so focused on the idea of uh, a small government, low tax, uh, uh, you know, uh, Thatcher slash Reagan uh, ideology uh, that has dominated conservative politics for so long? Um, you know, as an observer, it is a fascinating thing to watch, but it also has the potential to cause some real uh, ruptures within the conservative movement. Yeah, I would say it does raise some questions about whether conservatives who therefore don't find this incarnation of the conservative party conservative enough, whether they will stay home on Election Day or perhaps opt instead for Maxime Bernier's People's Party or, you know, conversely, whether the desire to get rid of Prime Minister Trudeau is so strong that they will hold their noses and vote for O'Toole anyway. I guess O'Toole has made the calculation that there are enough disaffected liberals and other progressive voters who are unhappy with the current government, that they will outnumber the rock-ribbed conservatives who think O'Toole's move to the center is so squishy, and therefore at the end of the day he comes out ahead. I guess that's the calculation. Well, this is going to be one of the questions that the election answers, right? Some conservatives do have a habit of, you know, wanting that ideologically pure conservative party, and if they don't get it, they they pick up their marbles and go home, which uh, has been a problem for Tory leaders. It may be a problem for O'Toole in this election. We will see. Uh, the polls so far suggest that uh, O'Toole is hanging on to his base of support, uh, and in fact, uh, growing it by a few percentage points. Uh, one other point that I, I 
you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. Uh, but the places where Bernier and the People's Party uh, might have the greatest purchase are also, I think, the places where the Tories could afford to lose some points without losing a member, right? The the I'm thinking of the rural and prairie seats where the Tories win by, you know, 20 and 30 points. Well, if they only win by 15 or 20 points this time around, they still win. They still win those seats and potentially pick up others elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, one more thing before we invite a guest to join us. It is extremely rare for all the opposition parties at Queen's Park to come together for an announcement. After all, you know, They're all still competing with each other as much as they're competing with the government of the day. Uh, But they did that on Monday to comment on a so-called vaccine summit that they held Monday morning with several health-related stakeholders. Um, Very interesting development. What did you make of it, JMM? Well, it was very interesting. Um, The natural instinct for competitive parties uh, would be to not give one party leader, in this case, Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, um, the spotlight and the you know cachet of having been the one to convene this summit meeting. Uh, we saw uh, Stephen Del Duca, uh, the Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner, and France Jelena, the NDP uh, MPP for Nickel Belt. Um, they all got along very well. Lots of um, deferring, lots of people, you know, making sure that everybody got time to to make their own statements. And of course, they all agree on the need for uh, the government to bring forward some kind of um, domestic vaccine passport, a vaccine certificate program. Um, You know, even, I mean, (laughs) despite his absence, uh, uh, Premier Doug Ford was even sort of mentioned in the summit uh, as having... uh, spoken with uh, Stephen Del Duca on Friday morning. Um, So uh, oddly collegial uh, at this time. (laughs) (laughs) Oddly collegial. Yeah. And in fact, I was struck by how Stephen Del Duca went out of his way to thank Premier Ford for calling him back, returning his phone call and saying it was a very collegial call. And during the Zoom news conference, this would have been on Monday morning, uh, you were on it, I was on it, Doris Grinspoon, who heads the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, she sent me a direct message uh, in the Zoom chat saying, we the stakeholders want more collaboration like this. So, um, you know, note to all, uh, it's of course up to the government to make that happen if they want. Clearly the opposition is hearing about this cry for increased collegiality and more working together and they reacted accordingly. We, of course, uh, have heard numerous reports, uh, as you and I are recording this, uh, that uh, Cabinet is deciding uh, whether to move on a vaccine passport. Um, It is happening too late in the day for us to incorporate this into the podcast, but it is something we will be uh, keeping an eye on. And I imagine uh, we might be talking about it in next week's episode. Let's now look to the education system in Ontario, where very soon, two million students, I would think, are hoping to be back in the classroom learning in person rather than online. Our friend and agenda in the summer host, Nam Kiwanuka, wrote a piece for the TVO.org website on her concerns, given that she has two little ones at home. Uh, So we asked her to join us here on the pod. Hi, Nam. Hello, Nam Shine. Hi, John Michael. Hi, Steve. This is not intimidating at all. (laughs) Oh, it's It's great to have you here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. 
And, and we are, we should just, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, we got to do this bit of business every time we talk about the education system. And so let me just get this out of the way. Since it was created in 1970, TVO has been part of the province's delivery of distance learning. It offers online learning through the Independent Learning Center, the ILC, and it's been tasked with implementing a provincial online learning system in Ontario. Now we get that out there for everybody's education. I was going to say education, that too, but edification as well. And with that, JMM, it's all yours. So, Nam, for those who haven't yet had the chance to uh, read your piece, uh, which we will link to in the show notes, uh, what was your your, your thesis? Um, well, just to kind of build off of what just Steve just did with the disclaimer, um, I wanted to write something that kind of just showed the where parents heads are heading into a third uh, learning year during this pandemic and I don't even like using the word pandemic anymore sometimes I say panorama (laughs) sometimes I say pepperoni Um, (laughs) just to mix it up keep it fresh Uh, but I just wanted to write something that just showed where our parents are and you know, it's it, uh, because TVO is part of the Ministry of Education. I respect the work that the um, Premier Ford is doing and also Stephen Lecce, who is our boss. Uh, at TVO, we serve the public. And I really wanted to just kind of share what I've heard from my friends, uh, people within my community, the frustrations that they're that they're facing because it, it somehow this has become kind of like a political thing. Um, and it's not, you know, if you recall, um, when, um, schools were, when kids went back to school, there was an opportunity for them to go back, uh, to classes, but the decision was made for schools to be closed, uh, well, in class learning closed until this fall. And there's this debate came up about, you know, parents are against businesses and people are saying, well, they did this because of the economy. And I just kind of felt like, well, parents are part of the economy. We're part of businesses. We want the economy to start moving again. We want uh, businesses to survive because we are part of those communities and we are employees. And so I just kind of wanted to write something that went beyond all of that stuff and just kind of, you know, as a parent first, but also somebody who is part of, who's an Ontarian, it's been a very maddening year and you know i have to give our politicians our leaders um you know some grace because it's been something that everybody is learning as we go but you know for the third year for us to be essentially where we were in the first year for me i just thought was unacceptable yeah and let me pick up on a couple of things from there because uh when you say, for example, Stephen Lecce is our boss, what you mean is TVO is an agency within the Ministry of Education, and therefore, technically, you know, I guess he's the boss in that regard. But obviously, yes. uh, he has no influence on the programming, <laughs> and you know, we we're responsible to our viewers, our listeners, our readers, mm-hmm. uh, our producers, our executive producer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Definitely, uh, you, you were using the short form. I'm just explaining that a little more. Second thing is, <laughs> I appreciate I, that, Stephen. Not at all. I, I, I think we need a little more. I mean, I had I had a daughter in grade 12 last year, and I know what that educational experience was like for her. And but but, you know, she was 17, 18 years old. I mean, you got little ones. I think we need to hear a little bit more about what online education 100 percent of the time when they were doing it was like for you and your household last year. It was chaotic and it was really stressful. Um, my daughter started uh, the, her first year in this environment of online learning. She was in grade one. And last year, um, she didn't even know how to use a computer. Um, so my husband or I had to be in the room with the kids just to get them set up. 
Um, she didn't know how to spell certain words. So we were sitting there spelling and it just kind of felt, you know, at one point I, I sent a note to both of their teachers and I said, I'm doing the work because it, it would take me maybe an hour to do their work, um, but it would take me maybe 10 hours to complete all the work because I would have to, because everyone's so distracted, right? And um, it's been very difficult for the kids because they've been spending a lot of time on the screens. When this was an emergency situation, totally understand that, you know, but right now I just feel like this is the default and kids are struggling uh, emotionally, mentally. My daughter, one of her friends wasn't online at all. Um, and I believe that her mother is an essential worker. So she's missing from the classroom. I'm not sure what's happening behind the scenes, but it just makes me think about all these other kids who might not have um, two parents at home who are able to juggle around, uh, to juggle around their work uh, to help them learn what's happening to those children. And I know that we, you know, at one point we were taping the agenda from home. And Steve, I know it was very fun for you too. But I could, <laughs> I was downstairs. I, I I made a little space in the basement, and again, I have you know, a certain privilege. We live in a house. So the kids were in the living room um, and I was in the basement taping. And, you know, I don't know if people have this idea that children, when you tell them what to do, they just sit there and do it. That's not <laughs> how it happens. Um, do not believe those TV shows that, you know, perpetuate that because that propaganda about children just listening to their parents, it doesn't really happen. Um, so I would be downstairs taping and upstairs, it felt like it was like, you know, a wrestling match was happening. There was, there were fighting, there were tantrums. Um, you know, there was a lot of emotion. And then we decided to keep it fresh again. We added a puppy into the mix. So that just, you know, it was complete chaos. Where's your problem? And my, my son was tested. <laughs> exactly. And my son was tested. And um, my son is two years behind now. But I wasn't given, and I spoke to the teacher, um, my son is 10 years old, and he's going into uh, grade five next year. I don't think he's ready to go to grade five. We weren't given the option to hold them back. I wanted to hold him back. I spoke to the teacher. Uh, is this a possibility? I was told that it's, we don't do that anymore. We don't keep kids back. Um, and if I wanted to, I would have to, you know, um, I would have to go to speak to the superintendent, all these other people to try to make it happen. So for me, it's just like, like, yeah, last year happened and I was under the impression that because we were home from April that the government would be working, doing everything it can to prepare us for September. Again, COVID, you know, uh, is beyond our control, but I just feel like leaving it till the last minute. I mean, we're a week away from school and I still don't know what else is being done to keep um, the kids safe. My kids are going back to in-class learning. They're going back. My uh, my daughter is also going back, and, and a lot of what you said in your piece uh, felt very, very familiar to me, of course, um, you know, and, and what you've been describing, you know, trying to, to work through the learning from home. Uh, again, um, all very familiar to me. Uh, what has the reaction been like uh, from our readers? Um, it's been... It's been, I think people are happy to be seen. And again, um, I'm not going to claim that I'm the voice of uh, parents across the province because everybody has their own voice. I just happen to have a, a, a place where I can talk about this. I have a platform for it. Um, and I just wanted to, I read one of the comments and I, I want to, if I can have the opportunity, you know, um, I made the point that Dr. Moore had said that um, one of the groups where it's, that's not vaccinated are parents of ch young children. 
and I just kind of felt like at this level of the pandemic, I don't know what it does to blame people. If people haven't been vaccinated this far, we have to be able to connect with them in a way that will encourage them to get vaccinated. And saying that, you know, the way, because one of the readers said that um, they felt that me saying that was saying that it's not that it's okay for people not to be vaccinated. For me, it's just the blame. I don't know if you're going to get people on side if you blame them. I think people are going to feel more uh, targeted, more alone, and that's not going to help the situation that we're in. And again, that really doesn't have much to do with the fact that you know n- nowhere around the world are kids under twelve are they able to be vaccinated. So just to have this message of people need to get vaccinated vaccinated okay but what about class sizes you know what about you know you can't tell teachers because one of the notes that we had from my board was that teachers will have to continue uh leaving the window open how is that like for me the frustrations like how is that a solution i feel really um you know i feel like teachers are being put in in a position and i You know, uh, because there are teachers who are also parents and they're dealing with some, you know, all these additional layers that was okay. Maybe that was a solution for from last year. But how is it a solution this year, especially when we're dealing with the most uh, contagious variant uh, thus far in the pandemic? I just feel like if you if you really want to nip this in the butt, we all have we have to do as much as we can or like or just communicate communicate let people know what it is that you're doing because i think when you don't communicate or speak to anyone uh speak to the parents and let them know what's going on you know our imagination i know you're both parents right (laughs) you can never stop worrying and our imaginations you know run amok and we have to be responsible for our children i'm vaccinated i got the first vaccine that was available to me you know i have a hybrid i have astrazeneca and moderna i was like i don't care just put it in me because i wanted to keep my family safe and i wanted to keep my community safe Right. So I think people are doing as much as they can, but we need that. um, We need to we need that leadership. Well, I think, Nam, you've kind of anticipated my next question, which is, do you have a good undertaking from the school that you send your kids to that they are on top of mask wearing, uh, increased ventilation in the schools, appropriate class sizes, given what everybody's dealing with right now? What's the story there? Well, class sizes, no. Um, I don't even know what's going to happen next week. I don't know where I'm supposed to take my children. I'm guessing maybe they'll send it next week. Um, uh, I don't, I think I know a bit more because we, I have to pay attention to this because we talk about this on the show, but I don't know how available that information is to parents who are juggling a million other things um, and, you know, trying to work, trying to put food on the table. And I, as I mentioned in the piece, you know, parenting is a multifaceted thing. It's not just about, um, you know, feeding your children and they go to bed and you go on the next day. It's just like you, you, you never, you never stop moving. Right. So I, don't know how much how many uh, for other people how much they know all i know is that our board has decided that they are going to um add ventilation i don't know what that looks like i only know that uh, minister leche said that they're going to have like a the standalone uh, hepa filters but that's in certain communities i don't know if my community qualifies um but yeah uh long the short answer is uh maybe (laughs) i know that my kids have to wear masks uh but you know like i just to use an anecdote uh last year um on the playground i would see kids wearing masks 
but I wouldn't, I would see a lot more adults, like when parents dropped off their children, I would see them not maybe wearing masks. And that to me was a bit frustrating. And it was also frustrating to the children. So, you know, we also have to kind of check ourselves as parents, you know, we, am I doing enough to keep my community safe? I can only do so much, but also, again, coming back to the leadership, if, um, if not everything is being done, maybe some people just don't think this is as serious as it is. And, you know, going into a third year of learning in this situation, that's kind of disappointing. Nam, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, as a reminder to our listeners, you can read Nam's piece on the TVO website at tvo.org, and we will put a link in our show notes. Thanks a lot, Nam. Great talking to you. Thanks so for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, one final note here. Last week, we talked about the fact that Rick Nichols, the 10-year veteran MPP from Chatham-Kent-Leamington, was booted out of the PC caucus because he refused to get vaccinated. He's now sitting as an independent. Nichols confirmed this past week that he will not run again next June, which I suspect, if he sticks to that, will make the Tories very happy, JMM. Uh, Yes, this... uh would be a very safe seat for the Tories to uh, hold, uh, I guess, or retake, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, So, you know, had Nichols decided to run either as an independent or for some other party banner, uh, he could have split the conservative vote. Uh, If he is not doing that, then uh, the conservatives would be uh, much more confident that that is at least one seat uh, in Ontario's electoral map that they don't have to worry about. Indeed. Okay, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you liked and what you didn't, and help make this podcast a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now is my quote of the week, and I want to take us back to the Bolton mob story that shut down the Liberal campaign event last week. Here's Justin Trudeau later that night in Brampton, where he had to decamp to talk to supporters and journalists. They had a difficult year, too. And I know and I hear the anger, the frustration, perhaps the fear. And I hear that. And I know we have to work even harder to be there for each other, to support each other. And we need to meet that anger with compassion. Because that's who we are as Canadians. That's Liberal leader Justin Trudeau in Brampton late last Saturday night, declining to meet anger with more anger, but rather with empathy. Uh, Speaking of empathy, uh, my quote of the week is from uh, Stephen Del Duca, and it is uh, from Monday's Vaccine Passport Summit, or or rather the press conference that followed. Uh, As we mentioned, the conference included uh, NDP MPP Francelina and Green Party leader uh, Mike Schreiner. Uh, But the Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, uh, multiple times had a very relatable problem. Stephen, I believe you're muted right now. You, you are correct. I was muted. Here we go. After 18 months, I'm still doing that to myself. <laughs> uh, so as, uh, as I was saying, thanks for the question, Steve. Steven, you're muted again. Sorry about that. If Premier for it's because I have dogs here at home and they often bark. So I mute when I'm not speaking. So that's Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca from Monday. And I really want to stress that I didn't pick that as my quote of the week to dunk on him. But because uh, 18 months later, I am also still uh, leaving myself muted during Zoom meetings. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> and sometimes for the same reasons as he had to. My dog is snoring right now as we speak. Hoping you're not hearing that in the background. 
That is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>